You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Ben Radford and I were having a conversation about whether or not it would be appropriate to have an episode of Monster Talk about ninjas. I mean... They have some characteristics of monsters, but are they monsters? Are they really appropriate for monster talk? If only there was a way I could ask a real ninja. Holy flying guillotine is the Ask a Ninja Ninja from AskAninja.com. Well, since you're here, are ninjas monsters? Monster talk, Ask a Ninja! Are ninjas monsters? Sure! Monstering is one of our main things in these soft and insincere times. I think monsters have gotten a bad name. But back in the day, if you wanted to teach your kids a lesson, you brought in a monster from the Latin word monstrum, meaning I only know one chord on this guitar. Parents would hire these monstrums to come and sing one chord teaching songs to the children. And if the children didn't memorize every lyric of the song, then the monstrum would come back and sing it again. Of course, that's why children fear monsters, because their, their songs suck. And also because they usually got paid baby meat in. The first time you see somebody eat a baby, it can be quite frightening. Obviously, ninjas today have very little use for baby meat. I mean, a couple things come up now and again, but not very often. But we do like to practice the art of monstering, which is violent annoyance. For instance, assassinating. Really annoying for people who want to be alive, but also a good lesson teacher for the people who are left alive. I don't know when monstering got the bad name, but we really could use more monsters in this world of 7 billion people. For instance, a birth control monster. That wouldn't be a bad thing to have, just traveling the land, singing one-chord songs about biological ignorance, munching away on the dead supply of newborns. And if that sounds horrible to you and you're like, oh no, that's only because you haven't learned your lesson yet. Well, that was weird. Um, I wonder if we could find another expert to talk to. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Hi, welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. Today's special episode about ninja. Today's hosts are Blake Smith, myself, Ben Radford, and Dr. Karen Stolzno. 
So, in all seriousness, why did Ninja qualify for Monster Talk? Because in legend and lore, the Ninja have become an iconic and supernatural, or perhaps preternatural force of revenge, death, and destruction. In thousands of books, films, and legends, the Ninja can wield exotic weapons, potions, smoke bombs, and climb smooth walls, shoot darts, turn invisible. It's clear that the Ninja embody the terror that comes in the night. But there is a true history of Ninja, and as we talk today with Ninja researcher Matt Alt, I think you'll find once again that the reality behind legends is often as fascinating as the legends themselves. Monster Talk. Who are we talking to? Who is this Matt Alt person? <laughs> well, Matt Alt is, a, is not a ninja, unfortunately. Um, he's just a guy who lives in Tokyo along with his wife, Hiroko Yoda, and writing partner. And uh, we run a company that specializes in producing the English versions of Japanese entertainment, specifically video games. We translate video games and stuff. But on the side, we like writing about uh, Japanese cultural things like yokai and most recently, ninja. So you, you, you kind of work against producing more of the zero-wing cultural phenomena. <laughs> yes, all your base are belong to us. <laughs> But, uh, you know, I have to say, actually, that sort of thing really is what got me into uh, doing game translation in the very beginning, because I was like, God, you know, it's, it's got to be, there's got to be somebody who can do it better than this. You know what I mean? I can certainly do it better than this. Oh, yeah. Well, as a little kid. I think, well, you know? my friends are, uh, you know, big gamers. I, mean, I am, too, but like console gaming, <laughs> Super Famicom games, the pro wrestling oh, yeah. games, you know. And those games, you know, a lot of them never got translated to America for licensing reasons with the wrestling federations. Yeah. And, and yeah. I, yeah. I, I've got friends who can... Who wouldn't know, you know, a single thing about Japanese, but can tell you what the manual says for those video games, you know? Oh, absolutely. No, man. <laughs> Japanese, Japanese games and Japanese anime. It is really amazing because Japan is this tiny, tiny country, yet it has this outsized influence on the, on the rest of the world. And certainly through its products and stuff. Yeah, it's and, a huge uh, cultural exporter. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. So, I was just going to say, so that, that's how you got into it, is doing translation, and then you, you just had, to, just had a, a pre-existing interest in ninjas? No, actually, you know, this is the funny thing. I, you know, our, our, our interest is more in Japanese culture and Japanese history and things. Like, I mean, my, as a little kid, the reason I got interested in Japan in the first place is actually robots. Uh, Shogun Warriors toys, Transformers, mm. um, GoBots, GoDaikins, all of these, these robot toys that were sold in the States without any kind of real animation or TV show or anything behind them, but they were just sold these toys. And I was like, what the heck is this? What are these? They're so cool. And that's, I mean, I realized, when I realized they were from Japan, that's really what started my interest in the whole country. So I've kind of come, thanks to Hiroko, my wife, a really long, far away from the kind of robot science fiction thing and getting more into the history and cultural aspect of things. And so the reason we got interested in ninjas specifically isn't because we're martial artists or anything like that, which we're not. Uh, it's actually because we were really fascinated by the portrayal of ninja, not only in American and, and European and foreign movies and, and shows and comic books and things like that, but also even in Japan, because it didn't really match up with what we were learning about the ninja historically. Perfect. Hmm. So we have, we have a lot of questions about the sort of fictional depictions, but what can you well, tell okay. us about the, the real historical ninja? What was their purpose and who were well, they? This is, the, this, is the really, this is the really fascinating thing, and, and, or maybe it's not fascinating, depending if you're expecting ninja to be able to turn invisible or shoot fire out of their mouths or lasers out of their fingertips, but ninja were a... They're really contextual. They're kind of tied to this very specific period of Japanese history, and that period of history is called the Era of Warring States, the Sengoku Jidai. This is like the Middle Ages of, of Japanese history. It's like the, fifth, the 1400s and 1500s up until about 1600. 
And this time in Japanese history, all of these different separate provinces were fighting with all of these different warlords, fighting each other, trying to gain control over the country, because it was really fractionalized and fragmented. And as part, of their, uh, as part of this kind of fighting, you can imagine this wasn't a very particularly nice place to live at the time. And as you might imagine, certain little more out-of-the-way places needed to defend themselves from like marauding gangs of bandits and things like that, and soldiers and whoever would be coming by. And these kind of fortified towns where people were arming themselves to defend themselves against any kind of invaders because they knew they couldn't depend on a kind of central government authority is where the ninja came from. That's where the original sort of concept of that developed into the ninja as we know them today. Hmm. So they're actually a lot more... The real ninja wasn't a kind of superhero. They were a farmer. A real ninja was a farmer. A farmer protecting his land and protecting his family and kind of bulking up their town and their city areas and things like that to kind of keep everybody out. And over the years, as they got better and better at what they were doing, they realized they could start freelancing the skills they had out to other people. And so ninja, especially around the 1500s, turned into kind of mercenaries that would sell their skills to whatever warlord happened to need them at the time. And they got and there's all sorts of historical adventures and things like that that they got into at that time period. And I know this doesn't sound really as exciting as like the latest ninja assassin movie, but it's actually the true story of where the ninja came from. No, that's what we're interested in. How did they make that transition then to superheroes? Well, this is the thing. So ninja are an actual aspect of Japanese history, right? They are kind of they're very, they're actually closer to something like Blackwater. Or I think mm-hmm. they're called Z now or something like that. Like private military companies that you see uh, active on battlefields even in the world today. And they played a really critical and pivotal role behind the scenes, not so much in doing assassinations and stuff like that, as I'm sure they probably did, but more like gathering information. Um, you know, and it, knowledge has always been power. But, you know, back in time, there wasn't any Internet or spy satellites or anything to be able to tell you who was winning in a, like a distant battle like way across, halfway across the countryside or something like that. You had to send somebody there. But you didn't necessarily want anybody to know you were sending people there. And so like, one of the big roles of Ninja wasn't as assassins or killers, but just simply gathering information and selling it. You know, who won this battle way out here? Who's got more soldiers? Who's got all of these kind of critical bits of information that a savvy warlord could use to make tactical decisions for themselves? And that's really the basis of what they were doing. And then toward the end of that, toward the end of that century, toward the end of the 1500s, they actually played, um, they actually started coming together more as mercenary forces and working on battlefields for warlords who needed people with a little bit more finesse than the usual foot soldiers. And these guys, they'd use rifles, they'd use swords, they'd use whatever. They were fighting just out in the open, but for, the, for a master, for the people who had hired them for this. And, uh, yeah, I mean, so it's actually a very different sort of thing than you see in movies where you have these hidden clans kind of doing secret stuff and passing down secret traditions and learning magic <laughs> and stuff like that. They were very much more like mercenaries. And it's also really critical to say they weren't samurai. They weren't aristocrats. They were farmers. They were all farmers, almost all of them. That's where they came from, very humble backgrounds. Where did and how did they develop these techniques? I mean, these days, uh, of course, you can, you can buy books and DVDs and videos and whatever else that, that just give you uh, you know a background in in the ninjutsu, and like, we'll talk yes. a little bit more of that later. But at the time, of course, they couldn't go to their local dojo and uh, and sign up for a course. So, how did Absolutely they develop not. these techniques? Well, see, this all gets back to the farmer thing, right? Now, in old Japan, was a very socially stratified society. There was a hierarchy. You had kind of samurai and then you had artisans, and you had workers, and you had this whole kind of social structure. Only samurai were allowed to carry weapons. 
if you were a commoner walking around with a sword, you would be cut down in the street, you'd be dead. You just weren't allowed to do that. So these ninjas, I've said, mainly come from farming communities and places like that. So, well, when you think about, when you think about it, there's a lot of farming tools that can easily be adapted into being used as weapons if you really want to be kind of enterprising about it, right? And for instance, the, 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 the shuriken, the throwing star, the origins of that come from a place called Togakushi, which is in the north of Japan, where it was used as a kind of nail-pulling device by carpenters. That's why there's a hole in it. There's a hole in the middle of it, and it's kind of diamond-shaped. And they would use this bladed thing to kind of pull uh, nails out of walls and stuff. So if you were caught walking around with something like that, you'd go, oh, man, hey, I'm a carpenter. I'm a carpenter, mm-hmm. man. No big deal. And th- this is where basically a lot of these concealed ninja weapons came from, the things that you read about in books. Many of them were concealed not because they had to sneak up on somebody, but they were concealed from the authorities. Hmm. This is also why ninja swords, and the ninja sword is a whole controversial thing. Like a lot of people think they didn't really exist because it's very different from a samurai sword. But the fact of the matter is ninja couldn't have used samurai swords. They weren't samurai. And if you've been caught with one of those, and you obviously aren't a samurai, you'd be in big trouble. I mean, you'd be killed right there on the street. So this is, this is something that they, they had to kind of conceal what they were doing from the people from the authorities as much as they did concealment in a kind of espionage sense. So, so was carrying a samurai sword like carrying an M16 around today, it, it marked you as a soldier of some sort? No, no, this is the interesting thing. So, a samurai, well, you know, this is, when you're talking about Japanese history, you're talking about a thousand, you know, thousands of years of history here. So, but if you're talking about something in the, uh, generally speaking, they were more of a symbol than they were a weapon. I mean, you carried around two, so if you were a samurai, especially in the Edo period, you carried around two samurai swords to shoot because that's what you did as a samurai. That marked you as a samurai. You weren't, and there were a lot of samurai out there who weren't particularly good swordsmen. In fact, maybe most of them weren't particularly good swordsmen. Being a samurai was being an aristocrat, and those swords were the mark of it. Actually, if you see films like The Seven Samurai, a couple of the samurai in the in the Seven Samurai aren't really good at <laughs> just like cutting people down with swords or even using them at all. That's like that's better than I am. Well, hey man, you know you got a big sword like that. It's easy to do a little damage with it, huh? But uh, I'm talking about technique and stuff like that. So if the class system was so important in Japan, how did uh, people who were lowly farmers develop or become so important? Well, this is the thing. I mean, you know, Japan might be a, a socially, Japan might have been a socially stratified uh, society back then, but warlords were nothing if not pragmatic. And just because you were a farmer didn't mean you were stupid. Not by any means. You were used to making your living off the land. And once again, getting into a kind of thematic and getting into a kind of film thing here. If you've seen the Seven Samurai, one of the big, one of the the, the, the critical part of that film is that they keep getting overrun by bandits. They're, they're, this farming village keeps getting overrun by bandits, again and again. And so, certain places were obviously more defensible than others. If you're out in a big plain and you can keep getting overrun again and again, you're probably just going to get wasted and destroyed. But imagine that you that your little village happens to be up in the mountains somewhere, surrounded by peaks and trees and things like that, so that if you want to, you can engage in guerrilla warfare against the people around you. Maybe it starts out kind of simple at first, you're just watching them and hiding, and then maybe you get kind of sick of it, and maybe you start kind of using some new tactics and things like that. And over the generations of you protecting your area, you can develop into quite a savvy little fighting style, which is, which is the origins of ninjutsu. This is the origins of where it came from. And so when these guys got good at what they were doing, and warlords started paying attention to it, noticing it, that's when people started realizing in the late 1400s and the 1500s that this could be a commodity. These people could be used. And warlords were savvy. They didn't care if somebody was a farmer, if they could get something done for them or do something for them. You know, they didn't care about it that much. 
So those are the kind of origins right there. Matt, I was going to ask, uh, I have to admit that when I was a teenager, um, I, I briefly considered a career as a ninja. Uh, <laughs> Didn't uh, we all? I, 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 yeah, yeah, I'm serious. Uh, but I, I'm thinking, well, you know, don't want to be a writer, don't want to be an astronaut, a stuntman, ninja, whatever else. Uh, but, sure. of course, that, that didn't work out. So what's? I guess my question is, what's the job market uh, like these days for ninjas? Hey, man, ask Blackwater. You know, it's funny. You know, the, the, the modern-day ninja, you could say, are people like Blackwater, uh, mm-hmm. uh, private military companies and people like that, people who will go out and you can hire them or they'll do a kind of force for hire that can go out there. If you've got the skills, once again, it's just like I'm sure Blackwater doesn't care what your background is if you're a Navy SEAL or if you're some farmer from Nebraska. If you've got the skills to pay the bills, you can join up and they'll send you out to wherever their clients send, tell them to send you out to. Okay, so, so it, more, more these days it would be transformed into more uh, intelligence gathering. Well, sure, intelligence guys, but you know, Blackwater fights too. I mean, sure. those guys, those guys get in battles as well too. I mean, the fact of the matter is, the things that you needed a ninja for back in the day are still kind of the things that governments and authorities need services for even today. Clandestine operations. The need for that has never really gone away. The real historical ninja actually look like. I mean, did they really wear black bodysuits, or is that something? No. Okay, is that an artistic no. interpretation, or what is that? Yes, that, this, the black suits are really fascinating to me because back in time, imagine this. Okay, imagine what we've been talking about here, about farmers and how if you were carrying a sword and you weren't a samurai, you'd be killed, how you had to be kind of be careful. The whole modus operandi of a ninja is blending in. So you can kind of imagine that if a dude is walking around in black pajamas in the middle of the day, whether it's the 15th century or whether it's 2010, you're going to stick out like a sore thumb. So the fact of the matter is that ninja dressed like average everyday people, unless they were on a battlefield fighting, in which case maybe they were wearing armor or something like that. They dressed for the occasion, just like anybody else does today. Just like a CIA guy doesn't go running around with like a big CIA t-shirt on. You kind of dress to blend in, right? But this brings up, where do those black suits come from? And where those black suits came from, many people believe, is a Japanese illustrator by the name of Hokusai. You've heard of him because he drew that, that really famous wave, the... the uh, the, the wave illustration. Of, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, absolutely. Classic, right? Anyway, that guy invented the concept of manga or comic books. He's actually credited with that. And some of his books are basically just a lot of text and fun little sketches. They're not like a modern manga comic book, but they are kind of fun sketches and text written together. And in that, he drew a picture of a ninja. This is back in the 1800s. And that ninja is dressed in black clothing that is really evocative of what... Uh, stagehands wear in kabuki and no plays. They wear all black outfits to blend into the background so they can come on stage and help these guys in their elaborate costumes without being seen by the audience. Hmm. So even though the audience sees them, they know to ignore them because they're all dressed in black. So Hokusai kind of combined these two things, you see, and made a kind of new visual representation of what the ninja were. But there's no representations of ninjas that you know of uh, of the time that have them dressed in black? Like that? It's extremely controversial. A lot of people think that, well, for one thing, black dyes didn't exist back then. If ninja were dressed in dark clothes, they were probably dressed in a very dark blue, like an indigo. Which Ooh, good is also, point. Yeah, which is also indigo dyes were believed to repel uh, certain poisonous animals, such as rattlesnakes as well. So there's mm-hmm. another reason to dye your clothes in indigo. So if a ninja was dressed in black for some kind of mission or whatever you want to call it, they were probably dressed actually in a dark blue, almost like dark blue jeans. What were some of the super secret ninja equipment that they used? Yeah, I love all that stuff. I mean, over the centuries, there's all sorts of crazy little tools and techniques and tactics that have been ascribed to ninja, some of them more uh, historically uh, grounded than others. But things like hidden so- swords hidden in staffs and things like that, 
ninja stars or like mm-hmm. shims that let them climb up castle walls and things like that. There's, there is, these things really did exist. A lot of them did. The question is just how widely they were used or how often they were used. I mean, one thing that a lot of people forget about traditional ninja is one of their big missions was infiltrating Japanese castles, okay? So, like, a lot of their tools are designed to help them get up castle walls, help them get through those walls, drilling holes and doors and things and unlocking them, all sorts of things like that. Also, lighting using, like, like uh, lanterns and things like that that they could actually hide the light with to see where they were going and then close it up if somebody came by. So even if you train with all of these traditional ninja tactics and, and you learn traditional ninjutsu right now, you're really training to break into like a 15th century castle of which last time I checked, you can just pay like 500 yen at the door and just walk right into these days and throw all sorts of distractions. <laughs> so it's kind of, it's contextual. Ninja are very contextual. Well, that that's actually great to uh, lead into my question, my next question, which is, uh, you know, I know that many people practice ninjutsu as a martial art. I'm I'm not into martial arts myself, but on occasion, right. I you know have I have friends who are, and I I read right. you know martial arts magazines. <laughs> I'm not sure how to say this without offending anybody, but is there any validity to this? I mean, I assume that being proficient in nin- ninjutsu doesn't make you a ninja. So what? I have a huge amount of respect for anybody who studies martial arts. Um, whether it's a Japanese martial art, Chinese, Korean, African, whatever it is, um, anything. I have a huge amount of respect for people who do that. And there absolutely is a tradition of kind of ninja techniques, ninjutsu, uh, mainly taught by a man named Dr. Hatsumi, who is the uh, head of what's called the Togakure School of Ninjutsu. It's supposed to be the only one that's actually still actively taught today. But the question is, the question, and I think that it's great that he is keeping his family or his family alliance traditions alive. They should be kept alive. The question really becomes, though, when you're studying this, what are your motivations for doing it? Are you fascinated by Japanese martial arts? Are you fascinated by Japanese history? You know, if so, go for it. But if you think you're going to become an invincible warrior who's, who's able to take on the Navy SEALs with his bare hands or something like that, <laughs> you're delusional. You're delu- and probably Dr. Hatsumi, who I've never met, would tell you the exact same thing. Right. I mean, I, I, yeah, I see what you're saying. Although I, I think you could make the same argument for most martial arts. I mean, whether it's, oh, it's sure. you know judo or karate or kempo or something else. I mean, it's sure. you know if if you're going into it thinking that you're going to be Bruce Lee, then you're going to be fighting exactly. off armed thugs in, in the suburbs. Then, then what's the point? So, Absolutely. but you know, uh, there's something about ninjutsu because I don't think most people who take karate or who take aikido or who take taekwondo take it because they think they're going to become an invincible fighter. <laughs> you know, they take mm-hmm. it because. A, it's, it's great mental discipline. B, it's great physical discipline. And C, it's, just, it's, it's a fascinating bit of, of culture. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, just, it's great from that. And it's, it's also, you know, sure, they're going to make themselves stronger. They're going to make themselves better people from doing it. But do you, I, I don't really think most people take Taekwondo or Karate thinking like, oh, man, you know, in a couple years, man, I'm going to be able to go to that, like, island that Bruce Lee fought on and, like, you know, get the, get the prize for myself. You know, it's, it's not like that, you know. Right, it'll be just like in... <laughs> It'd be just like in Mortal Kombat, you know. I'll be, I'll be exactly. against Johnny Cage, you know. Exactly. I'm gonna be able to rip that guy's spine out. I mean, I'm sure there are people out there who do that kind of thing. But martial arts are really relevant today. I mean, even though you know we live in an era of like spy satellites and and like machine guns and unmanned drones, I think knowing martial arts, especially if you're going to be a soldier or something like that, is certainly not a negative. I mean, those because they teach you mental discipline and they teach you they make your body stronger. You know, the question, they don't make you invincible, though. <laughs> That's the thing. And I think a lot of people who study ninjutsu are kind of uh, uh, brainwashed a little bit by the pop culture portrayals of them. 
you know. Well, well Matt, I just said, go yeah. I was going to say, if if if, uh, if after this show airs, you end up dead mysteriously, we'll know why. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if, if turtles, if Ninja Turtles show up in my house and start kicking my ass, exactly. I am... Um, I'm not saying that anybody who studies who studies ninjutsu is a weakling or anything like that. Not at all. I'm sure that like the, I'm sure the lowliest ninjutsu student could kick my ass in a heartbeat. But I'm just talking about motivation. Sure. We have a couple of questions kind of tied together, and one is: sure. Are there any modern ninjas today, or besides just the people who are sort of keeping it alive as a medieval tradition? And how does ninjutsu compare to like a judo or a kido or considering its 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 skills set as you described it is breaking right. and entering which doesn't really <laughs> it is well, not really I'm, mano a mano you know <laughs> i will i will be the first person to tell you that i am not a martial artist so like how ninjutsu as taught by the togakure school or taught by Stephen hayes is another person who teaches this kind of stuff as taught by these martial artists is something that I'm not qualified to comment on. And so I won't because I don't know. I like, you know, what, what's a stronger punch, a, a kung fu punch or like a ninjutsu punch? I don't know. I don't, I would, when we wrote Ninja Attack, and this is really, this is something a lot of people don't understand. We don't talk about martial arts at all in Ninja Attack. We're only mm-hmm. purely interested in the ninja as historical and more importantly, cultural characters. As, who, why? The Japan didn't invent the concept of assassination. The Japan didn't invent the concept of clandestine behavior. But ninja had become this symbol for being sneaky all around the world, everywhere. Like everybody knows what a ninja is. So why why is that? Why how did Japan manage? Why are these ninja, these historical figures from medieval Japan, famous around the world for clandestine behavior? That's what really interested us, and that's what got us to start writing the book. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing. And I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. So why do you think there's such an endearing fascination with ninjas? Well, that's actually that's one of the key things that we talk about. And I, we personally believe that the reason that ninja are so popular all over the world is because Japanese are extremely good storytellers, very good storytellers, and they're also great illustrators. And so the combination of that means they've created this kind of visual, conceptual shorthand that's just really easy to understand all around the world. So like Hokusai, for instance, drew that illustration of a ninja dressed all in black. And then after that, all of these ninja stories and things started coming out. 
And actually, the stories that were popular, these were popular back in the 1800s. And they're actually the basis for modern-day ninja stories like Naruto, for instance. Like many of, the same, many, many of the characters that appear in Naruto were recycled by the, uh, by the person who created that from old 1800s ninja story characters back in the Edo period. So there's this really interesting historical connection between Edo period, 1800s Japanese pop culture, and 21st century Japanese pop culture. This, this very specific bridge, especially as regards ninja, they're characters. And Japanese people are very good at creating characters, whether it's Hello Kitty or a dude dressed in black with a sword poked through somebody's head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're very <Yes>. memorable. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, speaking of memorable, I, I, you know, ninjas, as you know, are often depicted as having sort of you know, muscular, athletic, Bruce Lee-like physiques. Sure. Um, sure. Were there any dwarf ninjas or fat ninjas well, this, or, or, or fat dwarf ninjas? There's a rule. There was a, we, we uncovered in a, uh, in, a, in a text, an old text, uh, that there's actually a... There are actually ninjutsu guides that were written back, and the, the authenticity of some of these have been questioned, so take this with a grain of salt. But generally speaking, first of all, Japanese people were smaller back then. They were much smaller. But ninja, in, in particular, needed to keep very small sizes, very, very light body weight, so they could hang on to ceiling rafters and things like that and make it easier for them to hide their bodies. Obviously, if you're like a sumo wrestler, you're not going to be able to hide yourself in a room if somebody comes in, but if you only weigh like 60 kilograms, you might be mm-hmm. able to squeeze into a space the normal person wouldn't. So ninja were theoretically not supposed to weigh any more than a sack of rice, which is 60 kilograms. So they're like no, jockeys. Not, yes. Exactly. But they're not, they're not short by stature or anything like that. They just really worked to keep their weight down. And another thing they so, did was they, they didn't eat anything aromatic because they didn't want their bodies to smell. No garlic, no spices, that kind of thing. That was another yeah. aspect of it as well. So you, I, I, am I understanding correctly that, that you're, there's a belief that uh, the ninjas at the time were anorexic? Is that the <laughs> is it they were Actually, keeping their weight down? They ate quite well for what they were eating, but they ate very carefully. I think that's the way you'd say that. Yeah. So who would win in a sumo versus ninja? No. <laughs> I don't know. I want to hear the answer. <laughs> those classic kind of questions. I think what would happen is Godzilla's foot would slam down on top of them and yeah, that's... annihilate <laughs> Like Godzilla versus Bambi. That's a classic. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, sorry about that. So what are your – like? let's talk about fiction for a bit. Um, sure. What what are your favorite sort of pop cultural ninja reference points like movies or you know? What oh you- yeah, well you know I love stuff. I love stuff like Frank Miller's old comic books, like you know Electra Assassin and Ronin and all of that sort of stuff, and and even like Snake Eyes and and uh, Storm Shadow from GI Joe. When I was a kid, I grew up reading about those guys. And as I got older, I would see things like uh, you know James Covell's Shogun has a, the novel Shogun has a great scene with ninja attacking uh, a village. And uh, another famous movie that most people don't even realize has a depiction of ninja in it is Akira Kurosawa's uh, Kagemusha. Kagemusha, which is set in medieval Japan and features a bunch of people who I'm sure when American were watching, I thought they were farmers running around, but they're not. They're ninja, gathering uh, information and intel from the battlefield for their masters. So I love depictions of ninja, whether it's accurate, like it is in Kagemusha, or whether it's crazy, like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I love all that stuff. I'm interested in what you said about uh, ninjas and their, their diets and what they didn't eat. Did they have any supernatural beliefs or, or other beliefs about food? Or I don't, I don't know if it was supernatural per se. I mean, you know, you're going to remember we're talking about the 1500s. So this is an era before science. So there's all sorts of things 
there were all sorts of, of different kind of superstitions and stuff that I don't think you can call them ninja. I think maybe they were kind of popular at the time and ninja just used them. For instance, I think we read somewhere, we found somewhere uh, a, a comment that eating peppercorns was believed to sharpen your eyesight, you know, and whether ninja really truly believed this or whether they did it because, you know, it was just, you know, the, it was their thing or it was popular at the time, I don't know. But uh, all sorts of things like that. Let me follow up on that with uh, talking about some of the myths and legends surrounding ninjas, especially regarding their supernatural abilities and powers. You know, you you see in movies, you know, they can turn invisible. uh, You know, they can make an egg, uh, you know, spin an egg and it can stop on a dime. They can fly. They can, you know, they can get discounts at stores. Um, What what are some of the uh, supernatural uh, powers and and, uh, attributions they had? Well, you know, the, the disappearing thing is actually, you know, there's a certain magical sort of aspect to that. And when I say magical, I mean sleight of hand. I mean like David Copperfield. I don't mean like calling down, you know, demons to, to help you, you know, cloak yourself from visible light. Things like uh, using smoke to conceal where they're going. You're laying out a smoke pot so nobody can see where you're going or things like that. Um, or being able to hide yourself. Uh, you know, ninja were being... Hiroko is just Hiroko is, Hiroko is mentioning throwing your clothes off and you have a different suit underneath it or being able to throw your clothes in somebody's face so that they can't tell where, you, where you're going to. They had all sorts of tricks, things like that. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can call them magic, but their ninja had a lot of different tricks they used to kind of go about what they were doing. And do, do you want to put? Do you want, genius. I, just, I don't mean to interrupt. Do you want to put her on to, to answer that one? Actually, I think she just gave me what I needed to hear there. But uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, <laughs> now she's disappeared like a ninja herself. Sorry. Ooh, <laughs> I think she's hanging from the rafters or something like that. So that leads me to ask: Were there female ninjas? Yes. Well, or let me let me qualify that. Um, there were there were definitely female intelligence operatives, and we talk about this in the book. There was a warlord named Takeda Shingen who built a uh, basically a spy network to let him know what was going on in the world around him. And uh, one of the one of the techniques he used for this was creating a kind of uh, secret service within the service called the Walking Maidens, which were women that were rescued from basically certain death uh, because they were orphans, little girls, and trained uh, almost like La Femme Nikita or something like that in the ways of the world, and then sent out as intelligence gathering operatives. Now the question is, did they actually engage in battle, or were they doing battle of the more you know sexual variety? like listening to pillow talk and things like that. That's what most people think they did. But there is some evidence that they did carry concealed weapons and stuff, and who knows? You know, They might have gotten into a couple scrapes themselves. Well, I, you know, given that, that you know, the, the, the ninja era that we're talking about uh, was you know, over 400 years ago, what sort of sources and documentation did you use for the book? I mean, how, how, much, how much written information is there from that time that's reliable? Well, there's a lot of... Uh, information about ninja, written contemporary information about ninja in Japanese books. Not so much in English. There's not a lot in English, but there are a lot of books about ninja lore, about ninja history, about ninja facts as they're known, uh, about famous ninja and things they did. There's a lot of that in Japan. But if you're well, why, why would that be? I mean, stuff, hmm? Well, I'm, I'm just thinking, I mean, if for, for a group that is, you know, essentially clandestine and, and you know, yeah. guards their secrets, well, why would there be this wealth of information about their activities and who they are and what they did? Well, you're hitting, you're hitting on one of the conundrums of ninja studies, which is that there's a famous saying that if you have a reputation, you're just a chunin, a mid-level practitioner of your craft. You're just, you're only mediocre. So the fact of the matter is, 
is that probably the most successful ninja are the ones who will never, ever know anything about because they were so good at doing what they did. They didn't leave any trace themselves in the historical record. So Whereas really, we only know about the mediocre ninjas. Well, I don't know if you could say mediocre or the ones that are kind of on the borderline. Like Hattori Hanzo. Here's a, here's a perfect example. You've probably heard the name Hattori Hanzo because a character with that name shows up in Kill Bill, made by Sonny Chiba. That's right. Or, yes. Well, Hattori Hanzo was a real-life ninja, but his role was more like a spy master than it was like a dude running around in black clothing on rooftops. Like, for instance, you can call the guy who runs the CIA, the head of the CIA, you can call him a spy, but he's not out in the field with, like, a laser beam like James Bond getting information on somebody. He's controlling all of his other spies. And that's mm -hmm. what Hattori Hanzo was. He was a high-ranking kind of guy who ran the Shogun's uh, secret service before the Shogun became the Shogun. How long did ninjas operate in, in the sort of uh, true historical sense? Like, what was their date range? Well, this is this, the, the, earliest, the earliest mentions of anything resembling ninja go back to about the 8th century when uh, the Prince Shotoku, who was uh, one of the, uh, a regent of, of one of Japan's earlier emperors, founded a kind of secret service called the Shinobi, who were expert at gathering information. And that's where that word Shinobi which I'm sure you've heard before because it's been used. I've lost a lot of quarters on that, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Shinobi is a word that he coined uh, to come up with a name for his kind of secret service. This is way back in the, you know, we're talking in the 700s era. From that time period, there's not a lot, in between that and when the ninja kind of had their heyday, there's not a lot going on uh, historically, but around the late 1400s is when ninja won in a key guerrilla battle and actually managed to kill uh, by some uh, sources, the Shogun at the time. And that kind of kicked off this ninja arms race that went through the 1500s, all throughout the 1500s, that era of warring states I was talking about, and ended about 1600 when the Shogun unified Japan finally, Tokugawa, and Japan entered an era of relative peace. After that point, they'd kind of lost their rise in detra. Like, there, there weren't any wars to fight anymore. Which didn't mean there weren't people keeping the traditions around, but um, they weren't playing the critical role in shaping Japanese politics that they had in the 1500s. And uh, besides the black costume, what are some of the other elements of the modern ninja image, and are they historically accurate? Oh, well, the, the number one uh, thing that you read about in, in, in comic books and seeing movies is that ninja are somehow have this blind allegiance to using traditional weapons. Now, we say this in the book as well, but I guarantee you, that if you could somehow teleport a pair of night vision goggles and an M16 or an unmanned Predator drone back to the 15th century, those guys would have eaten it up. Or bulletproof vests. I mean, mm -hmm. the ninjas were the ultimate pragmatists. They were actually at the forefront of military technology at their time. They loved firearms. Actually, some of the most famous snipers and users of firearms in Japanese history are people associated with the ninja. So it's really a complete fallacy that ninja would totally issue using any kind of modern or cutting edge or, or, or weapons in, in, in favor of using just throwing stars and smoke and knives and stuff like that. That's a complete fallacy. What, uh, Matt, what would uh, the, the typical week or month be in the like of a, of a medieval ninja? <laughs> uh, I mean, obviously, some of it is you know, getting up and, and you know, making sure that you don't weigh more than the sack of rice next to you. But, um, but what, what else would they do? Well, ninja is such a broad term, and you're talking such a, like a huge swath of history that it's really tough to pin down what a ninja did when. But you know, mm -hmm. if you keep bearing in mind what I was saying about how ninja are basically uh, come from a kind of farming background, 
I'm, I'm sure that a lot of the time, they're, they're, when they're with their families, they're farming. They're doing what they have to do to survive. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, and that sort of thing. Um, a lot of times, maybe they weren't fighting. A lot of times, maybe they were just blending in and, and doing what they did best, which is, you know, being a farmer, an artisan, or that kind of thing. As, as time went on and, and Ninja became more incorporated into the actual uh, structure of things and the government kind of thing, maybe they were working as uh, government operatives. Actually, some of the first, the first police force of, of Edo, of, which became Tokyo, were basically uh, filled entirely with Iga and Koga Ninja. This is actually a fact, and you can see their guardhouse. It's still standing on the imperial grounds today. So, you know, average day of a ninja, probably a lot like the average day of any Japanese person at the time. Mm-hmm. So, so they would. So, I guess their work would be periodic. Just uh, if, if, if you know, some local warlord needed their and needed their services for intelligence, then they would they would travel there and talk to them, and then go off on that, and then they would Definitely. return. Okay. Definitely, because I, I don't think you know when, when you're when you're talking when you see in movies these kind of like up on top of a mountain, you have these kind of secret ninja society who are training day and night for some kind of, you know, for whatever whatever they're training for. Usually, that's not really. Uh, spoken of in the films and stuff like that. I think that is really a fallacy. I don't think you had very much of these hidden clans and things like that. You definitely had traditions passed down, and you definitely had uh, a kind of hierarchy, and you definitely did have kind of ninja families and areas, but I don't think you had this kind of ninja castle where, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. secret things were going on. You know what I mean? They were living normal lives and doing normal stuff, except when they got called into having to uh, work well, you know, I think in English history there was a time, and of course I could be wrong here, but it seems like there was a time when everyone was required to grow a yew tree and practice archery, in, in addition to everything else they did. Interesting, yes, yes. Yeah, and so, so that had sort of a government uh, sanction. What, sure. Who who in the communities was organizing these sort of ninja training programs? Was is, no, no, what, they were they were organizing themselves. They were they came from basically the the main ninja the, the regions that are most associated with uh, ninja are called Iga and Koga. And there are these two kind of adjacent alpine regions that are in the the, uh, the Kansai area of Japan, kind of in the area of Osaka and Kyoto and Nagoya and that sort of area, down south a little bit. And these places were extremely remote and difficult to get to. I mean, now there's like a, there's a bullet train running past them, so they're not particularly remote today, but back in time they were. And it was very difficult for the authorities to get in and out, whether that meant collecting taxes or drafting people or doing anything. And so those people in those areas, kind of fortified themselves. And one theory of how this came up is that, uh, how the ninja, where the, where the original ninja tactics came from, is that there was all these feuds going on in those areas between rival landowners and, and people living in that area. They'd be like kind of Hatfield and McCoy fighting one another, nonstop, constantly. And over the centuries, over the decades and centuries, this developed into some actual kind of uh, honed fighting techniques that once the, war of the, the uh, era of warring states happened, were honed even further into the suite of kind of uh, fighting skills that came to be known much later as ninjutsu. And so, were ninjas ever sensed to kill each other then? Well, I, you know, I don't. I think this whole thing of like, you know, if an Iga ninja sees a Koga ninja, they're going to kill each other because they're rivals. I mean, I think these were a these were pragmatic people, and sometimes they fought together, and sometimes they fought against each other, and sometimes they didn't even know they were fighting each other, or sometimes <laughs> you know the people who they were fighting for didn't even know they'd hired ninja. It, it's they were people with skills who used them either to defend themselves or, on occasion, to curry favor with the authorities. Um, one of the big reasons Hattori Hanzo became so close to the guy who eventually became the shogun is that after an assassination attempt, he was 
Hattori Hanzo used his connections in Iganakoga to kind of spirit Okugawa away from people who were trying to kill him and get him to safety. And after Tokugawa started rising in power and became shogun, he remembered that, and he rewarded all of these people for helping him. And so they kind of became uh, integrated into his uh, own military forces. So there's a lot of that sort of thing going on. You talked several times about warlords hiring ninjas for various yeah. missions. Um, what did it cost to hire a ninja for, for a you mission? Know, Just I, in that's actually something I don't know. I, I actually don't know that. and we, it, There isn't much record of it, but I don't think it was... It, necess- it wasn't necessarily in the form of gold or cash or something like that. Mm-hmm. It was often, very often, in the form of protection. You know, like I will, if you work for me, I won't send in my much larger forces to invade your lands. I won't bother you. I'll leave you alone. You know, let's you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, kind of thing. You know, because this was an era. We're not talking about like, okay, deposit two million bucks in my in my Swiss bank account so I can mm-hmm. you know go shopping on Amazon or whatever. This is like a kind of dog-eat-dog sort of world where, you know, cozying up to people in power was a really important thing. And believe me, Ninja might have been good at what they did, but it was more than possible, and it actually happened, that a warlord could flood their area with normal soldiers and just wipe them out. And that's exactly what happened toward the end of the 15th century, which kind of marks the decline of Ninja in Hmm. history. Do you you watch the show Mythbusters? Yes. Did you see the uh, episode where they tried to do the walking on water? Yes, I love that. I thought that was really great. But, you know, once again, I think those things they were trying to, those myths they were trying to bust, like plucking an arrow out of the air or walking on the water, I don't necessarily think those were part of any kind of actual suite of ninja abilities. I think those are more <laughs> from Japanese pop culture, you know. So what, about, kind of yeah. so what about ninja spells or magic, you know, powders or disappearing in a puff of smoke? Uh, I mean, some of those well, things powders, seem possible, right? Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Disappearing in a cloud of smoke, absolutely. I mean, you think about it, like modern-day tanks and things like that and aircraft have all sorts of smoke dispersers and things on them. I think one of the fallacies is is that uh, Ninja used kind of smoke grenades. All of the evidence points to the fact that their, their explosives weren't that advanced and they were more like smoke pots that they could place down and, and use them to, um, to kind of cloak what they're doing. And as for powders and stuff, I mean... If you if you sneak a bunch of pepper into your hand and throw it in the face of somebody who's not expecting it, they're going to go down. I mean, there's no magic in that. That's that's just something. That's actually a technique. I'm sure, you know, uh, clandestine operatives around the world today are doing things like that. I mean, you see it in movies and people are in a fight and somebody throws sand in the other guy's eyes. You know, there's all sorts of things like that. There's not much magic to it, but there is a technique and there is a kind of science to it. So that's yes, yeah. yeah, so I definitely think happens. It's interesting you should mention that. I, I was just when you were mentioning the the throwing the 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 pepper in someone's eyes, I remember reading Andre Agassi's uh, uh, autobiography, and he talked about how his father, the, the tennis great, his father right. uh, apparently doesn't leave the house without a, a pocket full of salt and pepper in case he needs to blind somebody. So <laughs> maybe Andre Agassi's father is a secret ninja, or maybe just a, you know, this a bad is, guy. This is one of the things that you you kind of when you start studying ninja, ninja there's a little ninja everywhere in the world around us. Every time, and, and Dr. Hatsumi, in one of the books that he wrote, was saying, uh, he wrote for kids about ninjutsu back in the 1960s, he said, every time you go out trying to collect insects, and you sit there, and you wait and watch, and see which way the grasshopper is going to jump, or which way the dragonfly is going to fly, before you grab it in your net, you're basically practicing ninjutsu. Ninjutsu means watching the world around you, and being very observant of things, and quietly learning about them, and then taking advantage of what you learn from them. So from that standpoint, you know, 
if you make some kind of you know move on a coworker or something like that to get ahead, or you know, or or any kind of any kind of of move that you do that's based on knowledge, is actually a little ninja, as we like to say, mm. a little bit of ninja on all of us. I like that. <laughs> so here's just a general question: Is there anything else that you want to say or tell the public about ninjas? Well, I want to tell the public that. Uh, well, first, buy my book. Can I say that? But uh, <laughs> yes, tell us more about your book. Well, no, Hiroko and I had a really great time writing this. And once again, from the beginning, I, you know, we aren't martial artists. This isn't a martial arts text. So if people are looking to learn how to pluck arrows out of the air, they're they're going to be sorely disappointed. But if they want to learn about the faces behind the masks, about these people, the few people who do remain in the historical record, this is the book to come for because there's very few. Uh, publications that actually have uh, uh, descriptions of what these people were and, and illustrations. We actually commissioned illustrations of each one, which, believe me, was not an easy task since there's almost no uh, visual record of most of these people. But uh, I, I think it's kind of a one-stop shop if you're interested in learning about ninja as people, not ninja as super people. And that, that book would be Ninja Attack, True Tales of Assassins, Samurai, and Outlaws. Um, yes, and uh, and in fact, I have to say that one of the reasons that that uh, that I was attracted to the book was because it did seem to sort of clear through some a lot of the bullshit about ninjas. It seemed to be, you know I was always interested in, obviously as a kid because I wanted to be a ninja at some point. Um, sure. You know, I was didn't we all? Um, yeah. You know, I was I was I was fascinated by the mythology about it. But uh, you know, just part of what I do and 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 part of what the show is about is actually getting to the historical truth behind it. Right. Uh, right. And that that's one of the things that I enjoyed about your book. Is that um, is that you know it goes beyond just hey everybody ninjas could turn invisible and walk on water exactly <laughs> it's like exactly. that's all well and good but how about how about you know where's the reality behind it so that, that's oh uh, that's, thank you I appreciate that I mean we I love stuff like Ask a Ninja I love stuff like you know ninja movies and stuff like that because that's playing with what the image of ninja are you know what probably real ninja would be really amused by how by how different their the impression of them is among the public and among you know the average person vis-a-vis what they really were and what they really did. It's actually, that's actually kind of a ninja move, too, you know? So, uh, I, you know, I love all of it. I, we certainly didn't write the book to, to make fun of anybody who's studying ninjutsu. I think that's really cool if that's what you want to do. And we certainly aren't making fun of the movies and stuff because I was as influenced by them as, as you were and everybody else was. I think that stuff's great, too. Quick, the, uh, the, the question we always ask at the end of our interview is, uh, what's your favorite monster? My favorite monster? Well, that's actually... When you're asking somebody in Japan what their famous monster is, you have to qualify that question. <laughs> like, what's your favorite, favorite monster? It could be any kind of monster. It could be, you know, whatever. <laughs> well, my personal favorite is from folklore. It's it's called the Kappa. You ever heard of it? Oh, Kappa? yeah. Yeah, we I sure just – it's actually in today's episode that just went live this morning. Uh, we talk about it extensively. Do you really? Yeah. Everybody loves the Kappa. That's Dude, right. Isn't that weird? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he's so he's very much in the vein that the, one of the reasons I love the Kappa is because not only is he a folklore creature and he's kind of just cute looking in general or, or really grotesque depending on your portrayal of him, but um, he's he's very much like what the Japanese call a, a yuma, U M A. He's like a, a un- un- unidentified mysterious animal. He really fits in with things like the chupacabra or the Bigfoot. You know, you maybe maybe there are some Kappa still out there. You can imagine them kind of being in the pond or the river or something like that. Cool. Uh, their their predilection for uh, uh, sucking out your entrails through your rectum seems kind of a horrific component for such a beloved creature. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're actually going for something called Shiri Kodama. Do you know what those are? 
Uh, no, uh, but they sound tasty. What is that? <laughs> well, they're, they're, this, they're this mysterious organ that lives somewhere in the human colon, and that's exactly what they kind of contain your your key essence. And that's really what the cops are going after. They want to get at that, that kind of mysterious mysterious organ that's in your butt. They don't I, actually want. I to have try. I have like so. Uh, uh, when you say key, do you mean K E Y or K I? I mean K I Q I. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Okay, so it runs the human body. That would explain a lot because I'm not feeling well this morning, and that that is uh, yeah. I think I lost I lost a lot of my key. <laughs> <laughs> maybe you, maybe you had fish. an unfortunate encounter with a kappa. I think I could, there may be a kappa in my in my toilet. That's interesting. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, there are there are folk tales of them hanging out in there. So uh, watch where you sit, man. I will be very careful. <laughs> Monster talk. Thanks for listening to another episode of Monster Talk. Today we interviewed Matt Alt who, along with his wife, Hiroko Yoda, wrote the book Ninja Attack, True Tales of Assassin's Samurai and Outlaws. Your hosts for Monster Talk are Ben Radford, Dr. Karen Stolzno, and me, Blake Smith. Our show is produced with the help of Skeptic Magazine. Today's intro segment music was from the Commodore 64 video game, Bruce Lee. The regular Monster Talk theme song is by Peep Stealing Monkeys. As always, be sure to stop by iTunes and give us a review. Thanks again for listening. Want to stay abreast of the latest from Skeptic Magazine and the Skeptic Society? Want cutting-edge skeptical articles delivered straight to your inbox every week? Then subscribe to eSkeptic, the free electronic newsletter of the Skeptic Society. Visit skeptic.com to sign up. Good. Is everybody ready to talk ninjas? No. Me either. (laughs) (laughs) Could you ever be ready, though? No, no. In fact, I think actually thinking that you're ready would be exactly what they want you to do because then you're not ready. It means you're not ready. Ninjas, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.